what's better in life than a bottle of wine, great food, and an amazing conversation? My name is Kate Sullivan, and I am the host of To Dine For. I'm a journalist, a foodie, a traveler with an appetite for the stories of people who are hungry for more. Dreamers, visionaries, artists, those who hustle hard in the direction they love. I travel with them to their favorite restaurant to hear how they did it. This show is a toast to them and their American dream. Thank you to the sponsors of To Dine For The Podcast, American National and Spiritless. To Dine For The Podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. For 115 years, American National has remained committed to helping people and communities make a real difference in their lives. American National supports great local community organizations led by the kind of people you hear about on To Dine For, people who are inspired to make a difference and inspire others in return. American National's philosophy is helping where it's needed helps us all. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write, and the states in which they're licensed, visit americannational.com dine. Spiritless supports the conscientious cocktailer who wants to live fully but drink differently. Their signature Kentucky 74 is a distilled non-alcoholic spirit for your favorite bourbon cocktails. It's zero alcohol zero guilt, and just 15 calories per serving. Whether you go completely spiritless or go halvesies with a foolproof bourbon to lower the ABV in your cocktail, you can get your bottle today at spiritless.com. Use promo code TODINEFOR to get free shipping. Welcome to To Dine For The Podcast, where we meet the world's most creative and innovative minds at their favorite restaurant. On today's episode is entertainment entrepreneur and champion for second chances, Franklin Leonard. It's just good to see people who are doing great work recognized for that great work. And, and to play however small a part of that is incredibly gratifying. Franklin is the reason that many of your favorite movies were made. He's the founder and CEO of The Blacklist, the saving grace for countless writers in Hollywood. Even if you aren't familiar with Franklin or his company, you have definitely seen the fruits of his labor. The Blacklist is a survey of the most liked but unproduced screenplays each year. It gives another chance to great stories that have been overlooked. This recognition has brought 400 films and counting to the big screen, including Juno, Spotlight, and Argo. Franklin is an advocate for screenwriters and has been awarded by the Writers Guild of America for his work. He's helped bring life to extraordinary stories shaping the world of entertainment today. We are speaking about the film industry, representation, and giving others a voice. Please enjoy my interview with Franklin Leonard. Franklin, thank you so much for doing this. It's wonderful to see you this morning. No, it's, it's, it's my pleasure. Normally on this podcast, we would be dining together at your favorite restaurant. And exactly. I always feel like food tells a story. And I'm always so curious to find out where someone's favorite restaurant is. You come from Columbus, Georgia, but you've lived I many do. places. So um, if I were to ask you where you would take me for your favorite spot, where would that be? 
right now, probably all time in in my neighborhood in uh, in Los Angeles in Los Feliz uh, on Hillhurst. It, it's you know early in the pandemic. I think they did a very good job of sort of making sure that they sort of continue to provide amazing sort of locally sourced food uh, to the neighborhood. And I try to give them as much business as I can. So uh, big fan. I mean, the other all the, the, honestly, my favorite meals are the meals that are cooked by my fiance. She's something of a brilliant cook. She's a brilliant director, but also a cook as well. And we might just have an English roast. Uh, at our place. So, oh, yeah. that sounds amazing. You know, at the end of the day, a great meal comes down to fantastic conversation and the person you're with, right? That's always a part That's exactly of right. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a huge part. Um, I've had meals that aren't the best food that I will remember for the rest of my life and, and meals that are amazing that I w- could be very happy to forget. Yes, so, I feel similarly. It's often the company more than anything else. It really is. It really is. Well, I'm so excited to dive into the story of the blacklist. But before I do, I'm always curious, when someone leaves college, you went to Harvard, you majored in so- social studies, where someone thinks their life's going to go at that moment. So if you could take me back to uh, graduating and did you know immediately you wanted to go to Hollywood? And did you know you wanted to get into the work you're doing now? Uh, not at all. You know, look, growing up as a black kid in West Central Georgia, there weren't exactly a lot of examples of people doing anything like what I'm doing who looked like me. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I was aware of Spike Lee. Um, and certainly there were other people in the industry doing you know, on the executive side, but I certainly wasn't aware of them. So I graduated college thinking that I was going to go into politics. You know, my first job out of school was helping to run a congressional campaign for a guy named John Cranley, who's now the mayor of Cincinnati. Mm. Uh, we lost a very close race. I burned out on politics very quickly, <laughs> though it remains uh, one of my first loves, as anybody who follows me on Twitter knows. But, you know, I, I bounced around to a bunch of different jobs before I arrived in L.A. You know, I, was, I worked on a congressional campaign. I was a journalist for The Guardian newspapers in Trinidad for a bit. I was a management consultant at McKinsey and Company in New York. Uh, And then and only then did I say, you know what, I've always loved film. And I believe that culture sort of lives upstream from politics and from society. So maybe that's the place I should be. And 18 years later, here I am. Well, this is interesting. This is really fascinating, because I was my next move was to have you take me to 2005 when you're working for Leo DiCaprio's production company. But I think I want to back up if you don't mind. How did you break into Hollywood then? And how did you get from what you're talking about right now to, you know, sitting there at Leo DiCaprio's production company? Yeah, I mean, I think like most people who work in the industry right now, it was, uh, it was my personal network. You know, I was very lucky that being a massive nerd in high school got me into Harvard. Um, <laughs> you know, Harvard opened a lot of doors for me, both because of the name on the diploma, but also because of the people that I met while I was there. And, and friends of mine from school knew, had friends who I became my friends, uh, one of whom was working at Creative Artist Agency, the sort of biggest agency in the industry. And so when I came out to LA for the first time, I had a drink with her. A friend of hers happened to stop by and mention that there was an agent at CAA that was looking for an assistant, and she thought that I would get along very well with her. I sent along my resume on a Wednesday, had an interview on a Thursday, was offered a job on a Friday, and started working on Monday. So, you know, yeah, and and that's not unusual. You know, so much of of the way the industry's hiring has worked historically has been who you know, not Mm -hmm. what you're actually capable of. And I'm lucky that I knew the right people, but that doesn't necessarily reflect on on my ability or anybody else's ability uh, that they know the right people. Exactly. So in 2005, you find yourself 
in a very opportune spot, right? A, a, a position that a lot of people would love, which is you're a development yeah. executive and you're evaluating scripts and you're reading scripts and some are good, but most are, eh, is that yeah. accurate? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, look, I, the job is you're a junior producer, basically. Your job is to sort of consume the world, read every single screenplay that's out there, every book, anything that could theoretically be adapted into a movie, or read the work of writers who you might work with to make other films. And, you know, working for Leo, I was working for one of, if not the biggest movie star in the world. Mm -hmm. and, and still, what we were seeing, by and large, were, were scripts that I, I wouldn't say they were bad, necessarily. They just weren't the kind of thing that I could walk into my boss's office, slap it down on his desk and say, you have to read this right now. Right. And that really is the standard, right? Like, like people aren't setting out to make mediocre films. You want to make something that makes people desperate to see it and even more so desperate to tell everyone they know to go see it after they do. And I just wasn't reading a lot of stuff like that. And and I had reached this point in my career where, you know, I was still early in, in my time there. But, you know, it was either the case that the job was reading mediocre scripts and passing on them, which isn't how I wanted to spend my time. Right. Or I was very bad at my job, which was ostensibly finding good material. And so I needed to come up with a solution to that problem. And that, that's really how The Blacklist was born. Okay. So I think what you've done, and so many other people think this, is really genius. But, you know, the way you explain it is, is you're very humble, I think, about it. Um, can you explain exactly what you did to create The Blacklist and, and how it became such a phenomenon? Yeah, I mean, and I've said this before, but it really was a sort of selfish endeavor initially. My, I was trying to find some good scripts to read over the holidays so I could do a better job at my job. And so I sent an email to 75 of my peers and said, you know, it was anonymous, but send me a list of your 10 favorite screenplays that you read this year that haven't yet been produced. And in exchange, I will send you back the combined list. So I don't think I was necessarily aware of the term at the time, but I was basically crowdsourcing mm -hmm wisdom about quality material. And, you know, the vast majority of the people that I emailed responded, a few others like passed it along to their friends who also responded. And, and the first blacklist was a survey of 93 people, 93 executives in the industry who had jobs similar to mine about their favorite unproduced scripts. And, and that went viral very quickly. You know, this is 2000, late 2005, early 2006. You know, iPhones don't exist yet. Facebook's, I think, in like 10 schools. YouTube was a new phenomenon. So it was very early in the notion of internet internet virality. And yeah, that was that was sort of how the first blacklist was born. And, and what was it about those scripts that didn't that you think never passed go on the first round? So why weren't they because they were quality, obviously, you know, as you said, crowdsourcing, they, they ended up being quality. What was it about them you think that they didn't get? Were they not championed by an agent? Did they not know the right people? What was it about those scripts? Well, I, I think they, they had all been championed by an agent, right? Because how would they have gotten to so many people if, if they couldn't have been voted on? Mm -hmm. But I think it's really important to remember that there's a gap, there's a difference between reading a script and saying, this is an incredibly good story well told, and then making the economic and financial decision to invest millions of dollars in mm -hmm. financing the movie to get it made. And so, you know, if you look at the scripts on that first list, the number two script was Juno, mm -hmm. a comedy about a high school student who gets pregnant and is trying to decide whether to have an abortion. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Lars and the real girl, a, a dramedy about a guy who buys a, a sex doll and treats it like his girlfriend in order to get over past trauma. These are not the things that, that people are, are necessarily eager to invest millions of dollars mm. in order to get made. 
but I think that, you know, what we know, now know, and I think we probably all know this, that if you start with a great screenplay, whatever the premise is, no matter how seemingly non-successful it seems to be, that gives you the best chance to make money on it. And, and really, and Harvard Business School did a study two years ago about scripts that were on the blacklist and found that movies that are made from scripts on the blacklist make 90% more in revenue than movies made from scripts not on the blacklist, all things being equal. Wow. And, and I think that, that really what that goes to is the value of the work that writers do. Mm-hmm. That a, a great script, again, no matter how seemingly non-commercial, it has more value than the industry has historically acknowledged. And I think that's really exciting because it means that we have the opportunity to make movies that are surprising and different and interesting and that investigate the human condition in ways that we haven't seen before and make money from them, uh, mm-hmm. which I think is the, you know, the optimal result for any artistic pursuit, certainly within like a capitalist artistic culture that we have in, in the United States. Well, and it tears down all the notions of whatever the gatekeepers are or who they are that says it has to look like this, the characters have to look like this, they have to be like this. It really gives more opportunity to just great quality writing and whatever that looks like. It has the potential to do that. I mean, I think it's really, I mean, it's, 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 there's an irony that ultimately I'm surveying the gatekeepers, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's really what we're finding is, is that the gatekeepers left to their own devices about what they believe is good, do a very good job of identifying things that are both good and commercially viable, mm-hmm. but they don't necessarily have the courage of their convictions to pull the trigger on investing millions of dollars in these things that they believe are good. Mm-hmm. Um, which again, I'm highly sympathetic to. This has been my experience throughout the industry. There's mm-hmm. a very big difference between saying, I love this script and I would like to you know, state my reputation on this script. <laughs> right. uh, they're, they're, they're two very different things. And so I think if anything, the blacklist gives people a lot of cover and a lot of reassurance that this thing that they loved, no matter how seemingly, you know, not commercial may actually be commercial if they can execute it well. When you look back on the many years of the blacklist, was there one particular project that gave you the greatest creative satisfaction that you said, wow, if it weren't for the blacklist, this would not have been created. And man, am I proud of this? Yeah, I mean, look, I I tend to be very reluctant to claim credit for the success of these things because I didn't make the movies. I didn't, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't do craft service on the <laughs> films. So it, it's, you know, there are people that have said this movie would not have gotten made if it hadn't been for the blacklist, right? Chris Terrio has said that about Argo. Mm-hmm. Kelly Marcel has said that about Saving Mr. Banks. The one that I that I hold particularly close is The, uh, the King's Speech. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I grew up with a stutter. Mm-hmm. And so I remember reading that script and, and, and feeling very emotional about it just personally mm-hmm. and then and, and sharing it widely with a, a large number of people and said people should make this movie if it gets made it will win uh, best picture and be, you know that's the kind of like hyperbolic call that people probably rightfully ignore and the writer at the time was in his 70s and so not necessarily in demand by the industry at all and I remember when the movie premiered at the Toronto Film Festival turning to a friend of mine who was an agent and saying hey you know this writer is not even represented right now mm. and months later there he was on the Oscar stage talking about being a late bloomer. So mm-hmm. that one for me, I think will always be special. But but there, look, there are a lot of, a lot of scripts that have been on the list that, that I have a personal relationship with and the writers with whom I now have a personal relationship with. And I think it's, it's just good to see people who are doing great work recognized for that great work. And, and to play however small a part of that is incredibly gratifying. We'll have more on this conversation in just a minute. But first, thank you to our sponsors. To Dine For the podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. There's a funny thing about most insurance commercials, whether they feature lizards or birds or funny cartoon characters. 
it seems like they want you to think about anything but insurance. American National, on the other hand, has real local agents who get to know you so they can help you reach better decisions about your insurance to make sure you're protecting what matters most to you. American National agents are part of your community. They're your neighbors. So whether it's solutions for your home, your small business, your farm, or your life, you can count on your local American National agent to make sure you get the discounts you deserve and the protection you need without paying for extras you don't. With American National, you get an ally, not just a web page. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write in the states in which they're licensed, visit AmericanNational.com dine. If you're like me, there are times when you want to feel like you're having a fancy cocktail, but you don't actually want the alcohol. So I love Kentucky 74 from Spiritless. It's a distilled, non-alcoholic spirit for your favorite bourbon cocktails, but with just 15 calories per serving and none of the guilt. You can pre-order your bottle today at spiritless.com. Use the promo code to dine for to get free shipping. Now back to our conversation. I heard Ken Burns, the great documentarian, talk about how film and movies help us access emotions that we wouldn't otherwise be able to access. We can cry in a theater, a yeah. dark theater, and, and many of us aren't writers. We aren't, we aren't beautiful wordsmiths, but when, when we see something on a screen, it accesses an emotion that we could never otherwise have gotten to. That really resonated with me about great storytelling. I'm wondering, from your perspective, when you read scripts, and I'm sure you yeah. still read many, I do. what are you looking for? I'm looking for that emotional reaction, honestly. You know, look, there, there are things that you sort of expect in any great script, right? You know, structurally, it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. There's a protagonist that you have some rooting interest for. But on some level, all of that falls away when you're reading something great. Mm-hmm. Um, what I'm looking for is to is to be wrapped by what I'm reading, to be to find myself turning pages as quickly as possible to find out what happens next, and to feel a little sad when it's over that I don't get to spend more time in that world with those characters. And I think that when when you find something like that, that's a really good signal that when, if you can make the film at the level that the script is executed, that audience members will have a similar experience when they watch the movie. Mm-hmm. And again, what you want to leave people with when they watch a film is you want to leave them having had an emotional reaction. When they leave the theater, you know, we're, we're so quick now when we, when we watch anything to jump on social media or text our friends, jump in the, the group chat and, and tell people, I, I just saw this amazing thing or I saw this thing, don't bother. Mm-hmm. Um, and you want to leave people with the desire to share it with people. Mm-hmm. Um, and hopefully you also leave people looking at the world a little bit differently, looking at their human relationships a little bit differently than they did when they went in. My background is television news. I've been a local reporter, Indiana, Arkansas, New York, Chicago. And how you get a job in television is you have to create a, a, a demo reel and you send it to news directors and they do the evaluation. They're the gatekeepers. And there was a prevailing thought that you got about 30 seconds tops. And if they yeah. didn't like how you looked, you were out. So yeah. they're not listening to your writing, your ability to convey the story. None of that. Okay. You got yeah. 30 seconds. So I'm wondering with you, how many pages would you say you know it's good? I think you can know very quickly whether you trust the writer to take you on a journey, mm-hmm. right? So if I, if I read something in the first five pages, the, the, the writing is clunky, I don't really understand what's happening from one moment to the next, that's a pretty good signal that it's not good. <laughs> but, but you really can't know that something's great without reading the whole thing. 
right? It's a little bit like, you know, in the same way that I think we can know whether a song is good or bad in yes. 30 seconds. Like, yes. is this catchy? Am I listening to it? Yes. But, but is this, like, but the distinction between good and great, which is critical, again, especially if you're going to invest millions of dollars in something, you really have to read the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that that goes to sort of the economic realities of why it's so difficult to find good material. The only way to do it is to do it, you know, and there are 50,000 screenplays registered at the WGA, the Writers Guild of America every year you kind of got to read them all or process them all in some way to find the good stuff. And I think one of the things that the blacklist I think has done that's most valuable to the industry, both the annual list and the website that we created is sort of function like a metal detector in a field full of haystacks. So we come back to the industry and say, Hey, Hey, here's a bushel of needles. You're not necessarily going to use all of these, but this is probably a better place to start than getting on your hands and knees in those haystacks, trying to find a single needle. The blacklist in its inception was obviously screenplays that were championed by agents that had been overlooked. The website now is a little bit different. Can you explain that? Yeah, the annual list started in 2005. And by 2010, this notion of a once yearly PDF that circulated via email had become rather adorable, right? Like the internet (laughs) had sort of whooshed forward and the way that we share information, communicate all of those things, I think had changed very rapidly. And by 2010, you know, I was going on a lot of speaking things and panels and talking about what the blacklist was. And the first question that would inevitably be asked of me was, you know, hey, it's great that you did this thing that helps people that are already in the system. But I wrote what I think is a pretty good script. You know, I I live in Indiana or Arkansas Mm -hmm. or Columbus, Georgia, where I grew up, but I don't know the right people to get so that it can end up on the blacklist. What do I do with my script so that I can get it seen? And, you know, I would come back to LA and ask people who had been in the industry longer than I was, or who were more wise about the industry's, you know, inner workings than I was. And I would ask, you know, what is the answer to this? Surely there's a system by which, you know, we are able to identify talent anywhere because that's the lifeblood of our business. And if we're not scouting that effectively, you know, we, we might as well be a basketball team that is only hiring the players that, that, that the owner knows. Right. And you're not, you're not going to do very well in the NBA if that's, if that's your roster. Mm-hmm. So I, we built, you know, me and my partner Dino built this website that, that allows anybody on earth to upload their screenplay for a small fee, pay an additional fee to get their script evaluated by experienced readers who've worked in the industry for at least a year. And if that script is good, we tell everybody in the industry like, hey, this is a really good script. You should do something with it. And six weeks after we launched in October 2012, the first writer, who was 23 years old and living in Staten Island at the time, got signed at our major agency. There was a film called Nightingale starring David Yellowo that was produced after being discovered on the site that was nominated for two Emmys and a Golden Globe. And even, I mean, now it's sort of so common that writers get discovered on the website that people don't even bother to let me know when it happens. We had a writer named Jimmy Kuros who, you know, uh, did very well on the site, went through our screenwriters lab. We have three screenwriters labs every year, sort of modeled on the Sundance labs. And then uh, in January of this year, I got an incoming for your consideration email and realized that his film, which he had directed, uh, had uh, premiered at the Cannes Film Festival and was the Lebanese nominee for Best International Feature. So even like, that was surprising even for me that we were that good at identifying things uh, sort of in that proverbial field of haystacks. But again, I think it goes to this idea that if you can start by finding great scripts, there's a lot of opportunity on the other end of that. I think it, it it's not lost that you started you know, a little bit selfishly wanting to read something great. You know, that's how this all started. Mm-hmm. But whether it was intentional or not, your mission changed. And what you've been able to do is 
tear down the walls of exclusivity. And I just wondered for you, sometimes life takes us on journeys that we don't anticipate. And I'm wondering what this is, experience has been for you personally. Yeah, you know, again, like you said, it started very selfishly. I think as we built the various tools to sort of continue this mission of identifying and celebrating great screenplays, what I realized is, is that there was good business in removing that exclusivity, mm. right? So, you know, I think we have, we're a business, we're a for-profit company. Uh, mm -hmm. We exist to, uh, to, to be successful on those terms. But what I realized very quickly is this, that because the industry has historically done such a bad job of sourcing talent in this realm, uh, there was an opportunity to do well by doing good. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we think of our mission now as identifying and celebrating great screenplays wherever we can find them, but most where the industry has historically failed to find them. And, you know, the best way to, to celebrate a great script is to get it made, and preferably with the involvement of the writer. And we, we, we do a fair amount of producing uh, now. I'm actually in Dublin right now, having just finished producing a film that was discovered on the Blacklist website. But it, it's incredibly gratifying. I mean, look, I, I think that there's nothing quite as rewarding for me, at least, to, to get an email from a writer who says that they quit their day job because they sold a script to a studio. Mm. Or, or, or even, you know, the flip side of that is to get an email from a writer who says, you know, I uploaded my script to your site, your readers just destroyed it. But for the first time, I understand what I need to do to write at the level where I can be a professional. I'm really excited to go back and do a rewrite. Mm -hmm. So, you know, again, I think we try to be of service uh, as much as humanly possible. And, and fortunately or unfortunately, the way the industry has been uh, arranged makes it possible to also have a for-profit business by addressing some of these issues. And, you know, look, till, till the day I die, I think probably the, the proudest moment of my career will be getting an award from the Writers Guild uh, of America East two years ago that is given to to someone who has sort of uplifted the honor and dignity of screenwriters. Mm. I, it still sort of boggles my mind. And I think my goal for the rest of my career will be to make sure that I validate that, uh, <laughs> that award when my career is over. Well, your career has meandered and taken many different forms. You're, as you just said, you're producing a film in Ireland. Two questions. First of all, when you look at your, you survey from above your career in Hollywood, what do you think you are uniquely good at? Meaning, what is most Franklin Leonard about this whole business? It's a really good question. I, um, what I think I'm good at, and I will leave it to others to validate that, is taking a step back and saying, is this an optimal system? Is this, you know, given the stated goals of a system, is this how the system should work? And then I think, you know, beyond that, being very deliberate about trying to, to build or alter systems that allow it to work more optimally. You know, I, it's, it's funny, I think because of the moment that we're in historically and also because I'm black and because I, I haven't shied away from these issues, I, I, I often get sort of cast as like the diversity guy. And, and mm -hmm. fair enough, the, these issues are very important to mm -hmm. me. But I, I really am also just the guy who likes things to make sense. And what I see in the world is a bunch of systems that don't make sense. If the goal is to make the best art, to, to, to represent everyone, to mm -hmm. make as much money as possible, mm -hmm. then we'd see a lot more diversity in Hollywood, mm -hmm. right? We'd see more women directors. We'd mm -hmm. see more people of color producing, writing, directing film and television. We'd see more disability representation. We'd mm -hmm. see more LGBTQ representation. And that's as much a moral and ethical imperative as it is a financial one for mm -hmm. me. And so I think if I have a skill if I have a value that I bring is a willingness to sort of not take conventional wisdom as, as law, to recognize it as more convention than wisdom, and to try to build something that, that can be a, a tide that raises all boats. 
would you say that was that's what you think you're good at? What do you enjoy? Are you still reading as many scripts as you were? Yeah. Uh, do, you, do you are you hoping to take it in a producing more in a producing direction? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I don't read as many scripts as I used to, uh, just as a matter of time. But I do love it, and I love watching great films, and I love. I think probably the thing I enjoy most is working with incredibly talented creative people and mm-hmm. being a a sounding board for them, you mm-hmm. know, and saying, okay, this is what you're trying to do. This is what I'm seeing. How do we get to where you actually want to be, right? Mm-hmm. That's that's just an incredibly rewarding part of my job. Also just, you know, again, to just be in conversation with wildly talented people, like it's a bit selfish to just be like, yeah, I get to hang out with these brilliant <laughs> filmmakers, but that's a great way to spend your time. Yes. So yeah, I mean, I'd say that's probably the stuff that I enjoy most. I, I'm finding my way through producing. I think it's something that I really enjoy. I, I I seem to have some aptitude for it, but time will tell. You know, look, I, I think there are better producers than I am. Let me be clear, right? And you can look at this year's Oscar nominees and many past year's Oscar nominees as, as evidence of uh, of who some of those people are. But, you know, I, I think what we're very good at and what we've built with the blacklist is, a, again, not to use the metal detector analogy too much, but a way to pick winners, a way to say, hey, this is something worth paying attention to. And as much as producing, I think, is a way to take advantage of that ability, if we had a large amount of capital and could finance these movies and leave it to better producers than I to make them, it might be, again, a a tie that could raise multiple boats and and not just ours. I think about your answer to my question about what you think you're uniquely good at, and it really didn't have anything to do with movies as more as it had to do with systems and evaluation and analysis and fairness and justice. It makes me wonder what would have happened had you not said goodbye to politics and if you had gone on that path. Yeah, it's um, whatever innate sense of fairness I have and whatever commitment I have to that I think is credit to my parents. Mm -hmm. You know, I think they they raised me and my siblings as, as black kids in the Deep South in the 80s and 90s with a very clear sense that, you know, we have been very lucky. My father's a doctor who was in the military for 25 years. My mom was a teacher. We didn't really want for anything. Mm-hmm. You know, we were sort of told growing up, as I think a lot of black kids are, like, you're going to have to work twice as hard to go half as far, mm-hmm. but that you have been given a lot. And so you owe a lot to sort of your family, your community, and to the broader world. Mm-hmm. And then beyond that, I, I was just a bit of a math nerd, right? Like, I just had a natural <laughs> aptitude at you it. You were smart. Know. Just say it, frankly. You well, were naturally well, smart. I mean, look, I did very well academically, but I was specifically good at math, right? Like I was captain of the math team in high school. Like I was basically Steve Urkel, like while Steve Urkel was on television, (laughs) which wasn't great for my social life, but that's very much who I was. And so in many ways, the work that I'm doing right now is a synthesis of all of these things, Mm -hmm. right? It's a synthesis of the way I was raised and the point of view I was raised with. It's a synthesis of sort of my natural inclination towards quantitative analysis and systems thinking. Mm -hmm. And then I think it's also like, you know, I've, as I've gotten older, I'm sort of fascinated by the role of storytelling and the role of culture in the the world that we live in on a day-to-day basis. And so in many ways, I've sort of just marshaled all of these interests and abilities and and philosophies into one thing. And and that's kind of what the blacklist is. Do you think that your family's advice was true? Do you think you had to work twice as hard to get half as far? And do you think that's true now? Absolutely. You know, look, I don't know if the numbers are exactly right, twice as hard to get half as far, Mm -hmm. but I, I think that, you know, 
in any business sector, the numbers are pretty inarguable that, that black folks have to do more to get less. And, and intersectionally, if you're a black woman, a black, you know, a black woman with a disability, it's going to be even harder. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, earlier this month, McKinsey and Company, my former employer when I was a consultant, just mm-hmm. published a study about the state of race in Hollywood. And they found that, you know, black content is undervalued, underdistributed, undermarketed, undersupported, and that despite that, black content still delivers a 10% better ROI than so-called white content. And, and that, you know, there's a, a literally dozens of, of sort of throttle points throughout this uniquely complex and interdependent value chain that makes it virtually impossible for, for black folks to, to be valued and to contribute in the ways that they're actually capable of. And more strikingly, that the consequence of that economic, that market failure within the industry is $10 billion a year in annual revenue for the industry as a whole. So the short answer is yes, I think it has been harder as a black person to mm-hmm. succeed uh, in this industry and many others than it would be if I didn't look the way that I did. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, but the headline here is, is that the industry itself, not just black Hollywood, not just me, loses $10 billion annually as a consequence of that failure. So, you know, again, I think there's a moral and ethical imperative to addressing these things. But even if you can't get on board for the moral and ethical imperative, like, let's, let's all try to get this money. Mm-hmm. When you think about your, you know, 20-something self trying to break into Hollywood, and you, and you even say, you know, you, you went to Harvard, you had made some connections. Let's take the average person, a minority, trying to get into Hollywood. What yeah. advi- what do you wish you had known and what would you tell them if they were in the room with us who are, they're either trying to write a screenplay, trying to be an actor, trying to get into this very white world? You know, the first thing is to focus on your craft. You know, we're never going to be able to control the way that other people perceive us and the other the way that other people value us. But the thing that you can control is being really good at what you do. So first and foremost, if you're a writer, write. If you're an actor, act. The training matters. So I would say first and foremost, become exceptional at whatever it is that you want to do. The second is to, to find your people. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean necessarily your people as in other black people. I mean your people that sort of share your worldview, share your interest, right? Mm-hmm. If you're really into horror, find your horror folks. If you're into comic books, find your comic book folks. Some of those people will be black. Some of those people will be will look like you. Others of them won't. Mm-hmm. But find your crew, support them, and find the people that will support you because you know, careers are long, jobs oftentimes are not. And so it's really important to find the people that will lift you up when you need help and that you can lift up when they need help. Beyond that, I think that, you know, the industry is changing slowly. And one of the ways in which it's changing is just the rise of the internet and the fact that all of us are sort of carrying film studios in our pockets in the form of our phones. Mm -hmm. And so you don't necessarily need a major studio anymore to make something, to make a movie. You know, there are films being made on iPhones. Yes. Tangerine was made, I think, on an iPhone 6, and the cameras on the new ones are much better. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's it's a bit of a catch-22, right? Because on one hand, you're like, well, my white peers don't have to do that. But on the other hand, it's like, well, you still have control when you are working at that scale. And if your work is exceptional and you're putting it on the internet and you're sharing it and it goes viral and other people are sharing it, there's a very good chance that Hollywood will call you. And and I've been really fascinated by the folks who are way outside the system, who are making incredible stuff that have attracted the interest of the industry. My favorite example, there's a group of teenagers in rural Nigeria, uh, Kaduna State, 
who make these like short sci-fi films that I happened upon on Twitter via a Reuters story that was done about them and managed to find them on Twitter. They have their own Twitter account and their own YouTube. I think it's like over 100,000 followers now. And they're out there making stuff that's as good as, if not better than any film school student I've seen. Really? And, and you know, and yeah. And, and what's amazing about that is, is that J.J. Abrams and Ava DuVernay have sent them equipment so that they can continue to make stuff. Awesome. And, and I, I highly find them online. They're called The Critics who rule the world, you can Google them, you will find them, and you'll, you'll see this is not just me sort of being, you know, hyping up some Nigerian kids. They are mm-hmm. doing excellent work. And what I'm most excited about for the future of the film and television industry is, is that that's happening all over the world right now. There mm-hmm. are kids who have access to the entire history of cinema via the internet, via the Criterion Collection, you know, streaming service, via Netflix, via all these other sort of things that we can watch on the internet that I didn't have when I was a kid, right? Like mm-hmm. if I'd wanted to watch a Wong Kar Wai movie, it would have taken me some effort to like, it certainly wasn't playing in a theater in my hometown. Mm-hmm. The VHSs may have been at the Blockbuster, but now these kids in Kaduna can watch it on the internet. You know, and so they're consuming the history of cinema and then they're able to make stuff and synthesize their own experiences with this history of storytelling. And I'm just incredibly excited as a movie goer about the things that are going to get made in the next 10 to 20 years by this new generation of folks that that don't you know, they don't have their hand out. They're just like, this is what I'm doing. If you want to get a piece of the upside, you should probably call me. Well, and you've been at the heart of democratizing opportunity. You know, we've just heard your amazing story, but you have been at the heart of giving opportunity to people that would never otherwise have had a shot at Hollywood. So I feel like this is, you you are really at the heart of this. My question though is, at any point in your time in Hollywood, it must be so easy to get jaded. And it must be so easy to let the system just beat you down and realize... You know, how do you personally handle that? And with what you've created, you, you is sort of an is the answer, right? It is the antidote. But I'm just wondering, you know, we're all human. Like, how, how do you yeah. not get beaten down? Yeah, I mean, look, I, everybody has those days, and I probably have more than most, because I'm certainly sort of running full speed at what often feels like a brick wall. Mm-hmm. And I collide with it uh, unceremoniously very often. You know, I think you sort of have to take a step back and find the things in your life that, that have meaning separate from work um, on some level, right? I'm lucky. I, I, I'm, I'm soon to be married to an absolutely amazing woman who also works in the film industry as a director. Oh, congratulations. Um, thank you. Um, you know, I love soccer. I, I, will, I will watch hours of soccer to get my mind off of literally everything. And then the other thing is, is it, I, it, again, it's cliche and it sounds very LA, but I just try to have gratitude about the reality of what my situation is, right? Like, I'm not... As frustrating as those days can be, and believe me, I've had many days where I'm like, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. I think everybody does in, in any business that they're doing. But fundamentally, like my job's pretty great, even on the worst, on its worst day. You know, I'm not digging ditches. I'm not putting my life in danger. I'm, I'm not, you know, what we're doing is it, it's life and death in a sort of indirect sense in the way that, you know, Hollywood defines society. But, you know, my, my younger brother is a is an emergency room physician. Mm. You know, when he has a bad day, it's very different than my bad day. Yes. My father is a neonatologist. He, he works on premature babies. When he has a bad day, it's very different than, than my bad day. And so mm. I think it's really just about continuing to remind myself that, that my bad day is still really, really good. Mm. And at a minimum, I should take a night, dust myself off and, and keep fighting because it could be worse and, and I can do more for the people for whom it is. I always feel like it's a privilege to be in the creative field at any level. 
Absolutely. And, and it is a blessing to be able to tell stories because stories are what unite us. That's where hope and divinity is found. It is where people's best days are found. And, you know, without dreams, where would we be, right? I think that's exactly right. And, and I think the other thing is, is that it's just really important to remember too, is that as, as powerful as stories are to unite us, I think they, they can also divide us and they have historically been used to do so. And I think that, you know, part of my mission is to make sure that the industry is oriented towards the the uniting type of film uh, rather than the dividing type. Or if it is divisive, it's divisive over its aesthetics and not the ways in which it, it divides us when we sort of leave the theater and, and have negative consequences for, for the day-to-day -day lives of people who live it. And unfortunately, over the 100-year history of the industry, I think we've, we've done a lot to make content that has a negative consequence on the day-to-day -day lives of people. And I think it's something we need to, to acknowledge and, and try to address. Franklin Leonard, this has been so enjoyable. Thank you so much for your time today. I loved hearing your story. Absolutely my pleasure. Thanks for listening to To Dine For The Podcast. For more information on the show, the guests, and the podcast, head to todinefortv.com. You can find us on Instagram at todinefortv and Facebook at todinefor with Kate Sullivan. Thanks to the sponsors of To Dine For The Podcast, American National and Spiritless. Special thank you to producer and sound editor John Golner. To the loyal followers of this program, cheers, stay hungry, and stay inspired. I'll see you back at the table soon. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.